Tonight, the second half of our 13-point indictment by the Apostle Paul. And again, as we dig in tonight, we're going to pick up tonight in chapter 3 and in verse 13 here in the book of Romans, and such an important understanding for us, because this is where we come into contact with people who don't know the Lord. Because unless they understand that they're sinners, they will not ever desire to be saved or come to the knowledge of our Savior. And so there's an important part of understanding what we would call the bad news of the indictment against all of mankind. It's not a pleasant picture that's painted, but it's a necessary picture. Because unless people understand that they're a sinner, then they don't know that they need a Savior. And so Paul's going to continue that for us, the Holy Spirit writing through him. And you're going to see this incredible picture gets finished off. And how many of you have gone to some type of diagnostic testing and maybe the hospital or an outpatient care, you've had an MRI, a CT, an X-ray, something like that? Well, this is like a full body scan of exactly how messed up the human condition is. This is a CT, an MRI, a full body scan, a bunch of x-rays, and every blood test known to man. This is the test results. And so you can look at it like that. This patient, which is all of mankind, has gone into the hospital, and now the doctor, in this case, who is Dr. God, Heavenly Father, is now announcing the prognosis on the patient, is giving the the results of all of the testing. And he's saying, you have every sickness we can possibly imagine. We've run this battery of tests, and here are these things that are wrong with you. And they're so wrong, from God's perspective, unless you fix them, I can't have a relationship with you. Oh, I can hear your cry as a human being, but we don't have the relationship that will bring you into heaven. We're estranged. And in that case, all humankind is going to get the same report. The same indictment that we started last Thursday night now continues as we pick up in verse 13. And God will tonight pronounce the verdict give the final diagnosis if you will would you join me and let's pray and ask God to speak uh, through the wonder of his word father again we thank you we thank you that no one can escape the conclusion that is drawn lord no one can say well I'm I'm good enough to meet those standards no one can say I, I pass no one can say there's no sickness in me Someone might be able to say in one case that perhaps in one of these areas, maybe if by some tremendous chance they have been guiltless in in one area of living all of their lives, but certainly not all of these things. Can any of us say we've never, ever, ever been at fault? And so, Lord, we thank you that that presents that wonderful conclusion that all of us need you. And so, Lord, we pray that your grace would be manifest in this place tonight, that you would show us how wonderful it is to have you as Savior Jesus, and you would bless us with your Spirit's presence as we study your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you look at these things, there's a little breakdown here for you. 
Paul gives us this, this condition of mankind. But in verses 13 and 14, the emphasis is really on human speech. It's on the tongue. It's what we say. Now, I think most of us in this room can say at some point in time, our mouths have not been God-honoring. Is that safe to say? Is there anybody here who for their entire life, from the moment you were born, you never cried when you actually weren't, you know, your diaper wasn't dirty? Now, there's probably nobody in here. So at point point, uh, number seven here, we would probably all fail just at that one. Uh, the second uh, picture is that of, uh, of our feet, of our lostness in the ways that we do things, and the things that we do with our life. Anybody used any part of your life in some way that's not honoring to the Lord? Uh, probably all of us, again, we'd all raise our hands and go, yep, I'm guilty of that one too. But again, you can see how the Apostle Paul, as he writes here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is taking into thinking about every part of the human condition about which somebody might be able to boast in their own personal righteousness. Maybe there is someone who's never gone a wrong place, done a wrong thing. Maybe someone has never spoken a word that's displeasing to God. But add to that what we saw last time. And then God deals with our minds. Now here comes one that, okay, we're all failing at, okay? You've never, ever, ever, is there anyone in here who has never had a thought that shouldn't be in your head? According to God's righteousness, don't raise your hands. Because in raising your hands, you just had the one thought you shouldn't have. You'd be prideful and arrogant in raising your hand, so you're automatically disqualified. You see how it works? Do you understand and so as, the, as Scripture begins to speak to us, so it deals with my mind, and then it goes on in verses 17 through 18 to, to talk about the pride and, and the ignorance that we have about this whole thought process. Because even when you think that you might be okay in these areas, you're showing a level of ignorance because at the end, it's not you compared to other people. It's not you and me comparing ourselves to one another. It's us comparing ourselves to the absolute perfection of a holy and righteous God. That's the standard. And so all of us in that sense, we can't even think correctly about the actual standard necessary that we would even meet if we could meet it. Because we're humans. We're incapable We can't understand perfect righteousness perfectly. We get some kind of idea. It's called our Bibles, right? When we look at the Bible, we go, wow, that's impossible. That's what what the law does, amen? It shows us that that the task that we have before us is absolutely impossible. We'll never get there. And so now we'll pick up in verse 13, and here's the indictment. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit. Now, remind yourself that these are generalizations about humankind. They're they're not saying that every single person, always, every day, their, their throat is an open tomb. But it's saying at the end of our lives, all of us could look back and say we had an open tomb day. Maybe we had an open tomb week, maybe we had an open, maybe a year, maybe a whole life 
Might have been one of those people, you just had a tough time controlling what comes out of your mouth. Wasn't good. Their tongues, with them, they practiced deceit. Now, the word deceit, to understand it, and again, he's going to give five quotations from the Old Testament. First one, Psalm 14. The next one is Psalm 5. But as you think on these things, broaden your understanding of deceit. It includes lying, deception of every kind. It's words that you say to deflect the truth. Anybody ever done that? You actually know what you should say, but you omit the right words so that the person hearing it will misunderstand what you're saying intentionally so you can say, I didn't lie to you. When in fact, actually, you did. You were deceitful in the way you said it. Not just the words that you spoke, but you actually spoke in such a way knowing that the person would misunderstand it by the way you said it, even though it was principally truth. Mankind does that. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now, most of you probably don't consider yourself a serpent, poisonous. But think of the poisonous things that you've said in your lifetime. Think of the things that you've struck out and bit somebody with. And that's the picture. It's the power of the tongue. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That word that's translated cursing is a very unique word. And it means speech that's unbefitting the holiness of God. So it doesn't just mean vulgar words. It means words that are counter to the actual nature of God in whose image you have been created. Kind of makes a lot of other things cursing other than the ones that we normally think of, doesn't it? And bitterness... At root. Their feet, notice the switch to actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Man, this is just like, if, if you went to the doctor and he gave you this, and it was about your mental health, goner, it's over. You're toast. And yet, if you really think about it, it's probably not many of us in here who couldn't say at some point in time, we've all failed in every one of these ways. I know I could. I can tell you emphatically, there's not one single part of this list that at some point in time in my life, I've not failed to meet God's perfect righteousness in these standards. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Have you ever wondered to yourself, just for a moment, before we move on, why it is that peace is such a difficult commodity to come by in our world? Matter of fact, it seems to be an impossibility to come by in our world. Because Scripture says that is the condition of unredeemed mankind. So our only hope is the Prince of Peace. Amen? It's political treaty, as wonderful as political treaties can be to, to garner some sense of at least a temporary cessation of hostilities in our world. It's all good. Those things are good. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. True peace is not a treaty. True peace is a heart issue. And mankind is not peaceable in and of ourselves. If you don't believe that, 
put two two-year-olds in a room together with a piece of cake. War will break out. They haven't been taught to hate each other, but they'll start dividing it up. No, I'm getting the bigger piece. And there'll be war over a piece of cake. Why? Because it's inherent in the heart of man. To be dissatisfied, to not be happy with your standing in life, to want other people's things. And along with this goes all kinds of things. Covetousness and greed and avarice and malice. You see, that all stems from mankind generally not having peace unless you have peace with God. That's why Christians are willing to die for their faith, is because we have peace with God. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, brothers and sisters, how we need the fear of God. Both aspects of it, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. And now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And this is actually the good news. Because you don't have to be under the law, you can be under grace. Amen? But to those under the law, those that choose that route, those that go the way to say, look, I'm okay with God by myself. I am perfectly okay in the way that I live my life. And in fact, I can justify myself before God. I can pull out his word and I can say, I'm guiltless. You see, if there was such a person, then you'd be okay with this list. But there isn't such a person. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who run to the law. All of us run to the law. Unless we're under grace. You got a choice. The law or grace. There's no other sides. That's the choice. You see the law of God. Given very specifically to the Jewish people. And the law of God given very universally to all of mankind. Which is exactly what Romans 1 says. That what can be known about God. Is known through his creation. That he implanted within every human being the knowledge of right and wrong. And so nobody is guiltless. We're all guilty. Doesn't matter how religious you are. Why? That every mouth may be stopped. And that all of the world may become guilty before God. You see, God's not saying these things to us so that we can get all bummed out. He's saying these things so that we can come to the realization that there's a problem that needs to be solved. There's a sickness that is within us, inherent. In other words, you could look at it this way. Some some people are genetically disposed to certain medical conditions. Some people are genetically disposed to certain types of cancer. Heart disease is another one. And if you are genetically disposed at some point in time, you are going to likely get cancer. You're likely going to get heart disease. It's just because of your genetics. Here's us genetically before God. We all have the sin gene. Every last one of us. And we're all going to eventually sin. Most of us, it happens sometimes shortly after we exit our mother's womb. And from there, it does not get better It only proves out to be worse as we get older. The only answer to that is you got to change DNA. 
Why do I say that? You must be born again of righteousness. So you get a new, you get your DNA swapped out if you want to look at it that way. You have a sickness that's incurable by any human means, but there is a cure. You must be born again. And therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. It is universal. It's absolutely every last human being. There's no hope apart from the one in whom we have hope. There's no way on this earth that anyone is ever going to be good enough. We're all sick. We all can have the exact same cure. And here's the good news. That cure is free. You don't need medical care. You don't need to go see the world's most authoritative surgeon on removing sin from your life. You need to go see the Son of God and confess your sin and ask you to forgive and to switch out your DNA and to write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Hallelujah. It's free. That's why we call it the great gift, amen? The gospel's the good news. That's what it means. That's what gospel means. It's the good news. This bad news has even better news available. For by the law is simply the knowledge of sin. Paul would go on. He'll write multiple things on this as we go through the book of Romans. But he's going to remind us, look, the law, all it is, is a tutor, a schoolmaster unto Christ. It says, here's the problem, and you can't fix it yourself. I don't know how many of you have ever engaged in the study of higher mathematics. You get up in there, calculus and differential equations, those types of things, you know. Maybe trigonometry. The more you study, the more you figure out, man, the people that study this stuff are absolutely They're on a different level. They think in ways that the human mind, I'm not sure, was ever supposed to think, actually. You see, I know what I don't know. I know what I don't know. And though I might be able to sit down, if somebody really tutored me through that again, I might be able to sit down and do some differential equations and those types of things if I really put my mind to it. But man, there'd be a place where I'd get there and I'd go, man, I just don't want an exponent. What's that? That's all of us without Jesus. You might be able to do some higher mathematics. You might be able to fix a couple of your conditions. You may be able to beat back your flesh in a couple of areas. But taking care of the whole thing to where you don't die from it, it ain't happening. And so here we have this indictment as as we continue now the rest of the 13 counts that are against us. And they're very simple and we'll just breeze through them. Because it's important for us to to get to this place to where we understand. Because when you talk to people, you need this information. Because you're going to meet people who might be able to say, well, I've never really uttered a bad word ever in my life. They may actually think that. And you could say, okay, I'll give you that one. But have you ever had a bad thought? 
You see, you need this information because nobody ever passes the whole test. At some point in time, the indictment is so pervasive and overwhelming that everybody has to go, "Ah, I didn't make that one. I was good until you said that. Never done anything wrong, ever. Again, comparatively speaking to the righteousness of God. The debate is over, the defense rests, and it begins here with the, with the vile words that people often speak. And so the seventh charge here, their throat is an open grave, their tongues, they keep deceiving, and the poison of the asp is under their tongue, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You remember what Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 12? He said, the mouth speaks out of that which is in the heart. I hate that verse. Because when bad stuff comes out of my mouth, what Jesus said about that, it's not because your mouth took a, you know, a wrong turn somewhere. It's because there's something wrong with your heart. That's a little deeper issue, isn't it? You see, that's not something, it's just, well, I, you know, I kind of sort of had a bad day. No, it means that your heart's got a problem. Out of good man, out of his good treasure, brings forth what is good, Jesus said. And the evil man, out of evil treasure, brings forth that which is evil. That's there in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. You, you see what Jesus is saying bears witness to the totality of Scripture. Proverbs reminds us there in chapter 10, For the mouth of the righteousness flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth that which is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, that which is perverted. You, you see, unless you have a swap of nature, unless you're born again, you have an internal problem about which you can maybe rein in the problem a little bit, but you'll never solve it. Because it's not simply you controlling your tongue, it's you changing your heart and how you view the usage of words. It's you understanding perfect righteousness before you speak. A seventh, look at at the charge here in this indictment. Mankind is spiritually dead. Look at what he says. Think about it. He says, look, their, their, their throat is like an open grave. For the Jewish person, one of the things that would happen is the dead, and it's true in, actually in Arab culture as well, the dead are buried almost immediately and the grave is closed up. Why is that? Because decay sets in very fast in an open grave. If you've ever seen a human body that's been exposed to the air for more than a day or so, it is not a pretty sight, two days, and it's also not a very pleasant smell either. And so what he's saying is, people that are unregenerated, people that don't know the Lord, it's as if their mouth is open to the grave that is their heart, and what comes out is the smell of death. Not a pretty picture, is it? Because unless your heart's changed, Scripture says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So what will come out of you smells like death, figuratively speaking, when you speak. That's all of us. Their mouths without Christ are an open grave. It's an open passageway to death. 
not an open passageway, passageway to life, which is who we are in Christ. When, when I'm born again, I, I'm now alive in Christ, and so I have life in me. So that openness is an openness to the new life that's in me, not the old dead that was me. The eighth charge, by nature, we're deceitful. And the Greek words that are used here means to keep on deceiving. It's not that you do something deceptive every once in a while. It's that your basic motivation for the things that you do, in most cases, is deceptive in some way, shape, or form. Then, in other words, there's a, there's a problem with the way we actually think. And the word translated here, deceit, is translated bait as well. In other words, when you're fishing, the whole thing that you're trying to accomplish when you fish is to deceive the fish, right? Because if you walk up to the fish and go, I'm going to rip your lip off. And you show them a big old fatty hook and you say, could you bite this? They're going to look at you like you're out of your mind. So what do you do? You cover it with some nice worm. You throw on there a little power bait. You, you, you make your lures look like fish, right? You're being deceptive. That's what it says. Deceit is in the heart of man so that we cover what we say with something so people don't realize that what we're really trying to do is hook into them. We want something out of them. We say something to them. We're we're not actually telling them exactly what we're getting at. Anybody ever tell people what you think they want to hear? (laughs) I can tell tell you as a pastor, I get told a lot of things that people think that I want to hear. Praise the Lord, brother. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. See you at church on Sunday. I want to know the score of the Dodger game. People say churchy things to me because they want me to think they're churchy. You can talk to me about sports or your kids or your life. You don't have to talk churchy to me because I'm a man of like passion. I put my pants on one leg at a time because I'll fall down if I try and do them both. As people, we're, we're, we're flatterers. We're prone to not tell the truth. David in Psalm 36 said, This transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, for there's no fear of God before his eyes. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are actually wickedness and deceit. You see, David had the same problem. He said, I tell people the things that I think I want them to hear and know about me. Because I'm trying to give them an impression. The ninth charge is actually very closely related to the last one. Notice the poison of the asp is under their lips. You you see, there's a funny thing about venomous snakes. When you look at them, unless you know that there are several things about the world of herpetology, the study of reptiles, specifically snakes, Sometimes you can tell by the shape of their head, but generally if you just look at the snake, they don't have like big, huge fangs hanging out. 
You're not going to see that in the snake world. Matter of fact, the world's most poisonous snake, pound for pound, the black mamba, has very tiny little fangs. They're not even a half inch long. But a prick from that little tiny fang, and you don't get some antivenom within about 20 minutes, you're going to be D-E-A-D dead. And here's the crazy thing. That snake isn't going to tell you when it's going to bite you. It's like, hi, I'm Mr. Mamba. Don't I look cute? I read a story. You know, we lived up in the mountains. It's kind of funny because Loma Linda University Medical Center is one is a level one trauma center. So it's it not only is it a trauma center, but it's the premier snake bite center in all of the United States of America. And so a lot of the research that they do there in antivenom is the best there is. So in San Bernardino County, we have most of the crazy nutcases in the entire United States that want to handle poisonous reptiles because they think that they're close to this level one trauma center where they can get really good medical care. So there's this dude in San Bernardino city limits, by the way, who is keeping rattlesnakes inside of his house. And so he finally got to the place he was so comfortable with the rattlesnakes that he let them go in his house. He's like snake dude. And so he's got Pacific Diamondback Rattlers, Mojave Green Rattlers, Western Diamondback Rattlers inside his house. No cages. That's Ernesto right there. I'm trying to use different names. He gives them names. They're like pets. And he figures he just has figured this all out. Well, finally, after you know, a few people decided, we're not coming over to your house. That's called intelligence. <laughs> he finally started kind of getting rid of most of them. He got down to one snake. And that one snake disappeared for about two weeks. He reached behind the couch, and guess what? Ernesto met him. And it wasn't with, hi, nice to see you. It was, hello, I'm a rattlesnake. The dude lost his hand. You see, people are like that. For a while, we can kind of run around, hi, I'm really nice today. And then all of a sudden, and your hand falls off. Now, I'm not mocking his, but you got to admit, that's kind of dumb. David understood that. You see, when, when you play with things, when you play with sin, when you try and make friends with sin, David did that, didn't he? He looked down from that rooftop, he saw, he saw Bathsheba. And before you know it, he's not only lying about it, he's not only committing adultery, he's inviting Uriah the Hittite to his house. Hey, bro, love you, dude. Let's have some dinner. And oh, by the way, I'm sitting in your front to be killed tomorrow. You see how it works? That's our nature. Without a heart change, we're all like that. Maybe not to that extent, but we can strike. 
when people don't expect it. The tenth charge. The imagery of the ungodly speech just continues. It's cursing and it's bitterness. And and it carries with it the intention intention of trying to convey to us intense um, malediction. And that word simply means that you use words in a way to just wound and inflict pain. It goes from hiding it to actually using it as a weapon. It's like, I'm I'm not even going to hide it anymore. I'm just going to beat you with it. I'm going to use my tongue to slap you. We call it, we even have a name for it, don't we? Don't we call it verbal abuse? God's word says mankind is prone to that. Shouldn't surprise us that people use it. You, You see... And then you become bitter about it and hateful about it. And you, sharp, you probably all know people whose tongues are a lot sharper than their mind. Amen? Just saying. It's like, they're like the Ginsu of the tongue. But up here, more like silly putty. It's not a connection. That's the human condition. What happens? You don't know Jesus, man. You're slicing away at people. Hacking at them. Then he gets to the crummy conduct. (laughs) Bad enough. Okay, now, having said all that, I'm pretty sure every last one of us in here tonight could say, you know, I failed at a couple of those today. Let's say you pass that test. Move on to the conduct. Think about it. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction, misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. These are all areas of conduct in our life. And when you think about it, look, mankind's innately murderous. I'd like to say that's not true, but it's absolutely true. Let me prove it to you. Our country has actually shifted to where not only is abortion, which is the murder of unborn children, legal, it is the preferred method of birth control for many people. And I don't say that to hurt anyone. We have gotten so far away from God's standard of caring for life that this is an area where you can see the murderous heart of man. And you have Christians who are saying, well, it's not that bad. I mean, we really don't know. And as I will share on Sunday, you can simply go watch the study that we did from a few weeks ago called Case Closed. And I highlighted this whole subject, so I'm not going to do it again tonight. But that's one area. And let me give you a couple of things to tag on to it. According to researcher Dr. Arnold Bennett of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Pretty well-known school, I would think. A child born today, in studying the statistics of being born in a city like Los Angeles, of the 50 largest cities in the United States, a child born in any city of the top 50 in the United States has a 1 in 50 chance of never seeing the light of day. 1 in 50. That means one out of every 50 children born in every major city 
That doesn't matter whether it's in Montana, here in L.A., someplace in Florida. Take the major cities in the United States. What that means is, a child born after Roe v. Wade in 1973 is more likely to die by abortion than the total number of deaths that occurred in all of World War II. The percentage is higher. We have lost more of our population to abortion than we have to all of the wars that we have ever fought. You think the heart of man isn't a little bit wicked that way? We can all look at what happened with the Nazis and the Holocaust or the Marxists and the purge that happened in Russia, Pol Pot, and Indochina. So many different areas that we could look at, but it it is just, our world is brutal. What in the world is going on? The shooting again in Boston. We're murdering kids in the street. We're shooting police officers as they do their job. Mankind is murderous. Right now, there are 113 of the countries of this world that are engaged in war. 113. Out of the 196, more than half are at war. That's a picture of the condition of the heart of man. The 12th charge. It's general destructiveness. Sunatremia, the, the word that's used here in the Greek language, it's actually a compound word, and it denotes breaking into pieces and then shattering the pieces. Do you get it? it, it, it we're not, we're not, we are destructive. There's a giant pile of floating debris out in the Pacific Ocean that is larger than the Hawaiian archipelago, which, by the way, is over 1,300 miles long. It's just trash. The smog that we now have in Southern California is actually not from here for the most part. It's from China. Mankind is destructive. There are no major rivers on the entire planet Not one that doesn't have some level of pollution in them. The snows in the tops of the Himalayas, above 20,000 feet, are polluted from air pollution. Look at our cities. Look at the trash that we generate. Not to mention all the other dumb stuff that we do. I started backpacking in the 1960s. And I can tell you, when we used to backpack in the 1960s, when you went to the higher elevation of the Sierras, you actually had very bright blue sky. Those skies are gone. They do not exist anymore. Every once in a while, the wind will blow the right way. Very clear, still cold night. It'll still get pretty close. A man is destructive. 
And I'm not buying in necessarily to climate change and global warming, but you can absolutely see that we haven't been kind to God's creation. Amen? I just read, there's an article right now, the latest edition of National Geographic, of what's happening to the rhino population in Africa. It is illegal, now hear this, it is illegal to possess or sell rhino horn for any purpose. It is believed in some cultures to be an aphrodisiac and worth thousands of dollars per pound. But man is so destructive that there are people farming and ranching rhinos, cutting off their horns and storing them just in case at some point in time they can actually sell them. That seems absolutely moronic to me. And I'm sure it doesn't please God. We are destructive. We don't care. The end of the day, money rules. Think about it. Thirteenth charge is the general peacelessness that we have in our world. I've already said, you don't have to look very far. In Jeremiah's day, People were crying, peace, 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 and there was no peace. Because they wouldn't do what makes for peace. What makes for peace is when you get right with God. Not when you make another treaty with people who have unregenerated hearts. And let me give you an example of that. The Middle East. The United Nations has spent more than 30% of its time deliberating on one nation, Israel. Since its founding, 30% of all deliberations done within the UN have been either about directly the nation Israel or something to do with a treaty, another nation and Israel. Is there any peace? No, there is not. There were riots yesterday, Yom Kippur. You look at how many trillions of dollars, brothers and sisters, fellow Americans, how many trillions of dollars have we spent trying to bring peace to the Middle East? Countless blood and treasure, American patriots, our own children, fighting and losing their lives for peace. And it's gone like that. It's not because of the treaty. It's because the issue is the heart of man. The issue is an internal problem. It's not an external problem. Our president can't solve it. John Kerry can't solve it. The UN can't solve it. No treaty will ever solve it. Only the Prince of Peace can solve it. That's the answer. And there is no one on this earth that can tell me that that's wrong, because we've been trying. Mankind has been at war with his fellow man since the dawn of time. Probably many of you have seen the picture of the terracotta warriors in China. The first dynasty emperor 
makes some nearly 9,000 life-size terracotta warriors. There's been some new excavations there. Guess what? China wasn't quite as peaceful as they thought. And in fact, now they believe that there was actually Greek influence in China to the point that they were using, oops, bronze spear points and arrowheads, including finding dead people shot in the head with arrows. We thought it was peaceful. Man's been killing one another since the beginning of time. There's no peace. Because peace comes from the Prince of Peace. And the only peace that this world has actually ever known for extended periods of time has been largely because of a Christian worldview in certain countries like ours that have stepped in and said, we want to do what should be done, which is to preserve the rights of those who are innocent and being abused. Now, we've done that very imperfectly. But without the Prince of Peace, Scripture says there won't be any peace. Next we see, as we begin to wrap this up, the motive. A basic condition of mankind is quite simple. There's no fear of God. You see, if there is no God, then we don't have to worry about what a God thinks that doesn't exist, right? Pretty simple logic there for everyone. If he doesn't exist, then we don't need to concern ourselves because he doesn't exist. So naturally, we wouldn't care what he thinks because we don't think he's actually there. So for mankind, it follows this line. There is no God. Psalm 1 says a fool in his heart says that. A fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And so the motivation then becomes... There's no one to fear. There's no one to answer to. There is no life after this one. And so what I can get right now is all I need to concern myself with. So because I don't fear God, I don't believe he even exists, you want to see this in action. The former Soviet Socialist Republic, which were primarily atheist. China, which does not believe largely. There's a lot of Christians in China, but largely it's a non-Christian nation. You look at the immense poverty in China. Millions upon millions of people living in very large cities in abject poverty. While there are some of the most wealthy people on earth. You take God out of the equation. Everybody goes after what they can get because there's no God to answer to. There's no fear of God. That's the motivation and when you think about it, the fear of God has both a positive and a negative understanding of it. In a positive sense, we as believers fear God in a reverential way. It's awe, it's wonder, it's amazement. He can do what I can't. He has power that I don't even understand. He knows everything. He's everywhere. I'm just in awe of God. That's reverential fear. But there's another side of fear, and it's very healthy for us as the body of Christ. And it's the thing the world tries to avoid. People who don't know the Lord don't even want to think about. And that's if he's actually who he says he is, then he owns me. I'm his. I was created by him. He has right to my life. 
You see, if I don't believe he exists and I treat him as if he doesn't exist, here's what has to happen. God will do what he needs to do to convince us otherwise. And so God allows things into our lives to where we go, oh my goodness, he's real. You see, a healthy fear of God keeps you from sinning. A healthy fear of God keeps you away from things you shouldn't go after. A healthy fear of God says, look, God established the boundaries in which mankind is supposed to live his life and to go outside of those things is to risk the judgment of God. When mankind doesn't think that way, you get Stalin, you get Lenin, you get Marx, you get Mao Zedong, you get Pol Pot, you get Adolf Hitler, you get Saddam Hussein, you get Bashir al-Assad, you get people who think the only thing to live for is the here and now, not the hereafter. No fear of God. That's what motivates most people. I'm not worried about it. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. Nobody can tell me any different. Some of the saddest conversations I've had in my entire time in ministry is talking to people who believed that lie and made it to their deathbed. Who are laying there with cancer and they have no hope. And they begin to wonder, have I missed it? Now, praise God, until you take your last breath, the hand of grace from God is right there with them. And look, let me tell you about the answer. Because you can have that peace, and you can have that healthy fear, and you can have that reverential awe instead of the fear and dread that you have right now. You see, ideally, all of us should live holy lives. All of us should live for God, should love God, should have gratitude for his grace, for his mercy. We should have both types of fear. We we should worry about what (laughs) he might do if we're displeasured. He's displeasured with us. I've had countless encounters with pastors fallen in sin. And I can tell you with almost, almost without exception, they lose the fear of God. They think somehow that they're beyond the fear of God. Somehow that God views them differently than the indictment here. That because they're a pastor, they can sin with impunity. God just has to accept it because of the great things that God's done through their life. And for the sake of not embarrassing anyone or anything, I'll not name any names. Many of you know some of them. When you lose the fear of God, you're in a very dangerous place. Because that's what motivates unsafe people. I don't care. There is no God. No one to answer to. I can do anything I want. The unfortunate problem is the fact that there's religion in the world is almost proof positive that that's not true. That's why man doesn't have the answers. That's why man searches. That's why man looks. That's why man tries to find out who is this God? What is this God? What's he all about? Why people are searching for their higher power. Why they're looking for that Christ consciousness. That's why they're looking for something that's beyond this world. 
That is why we're spending billions of dollars searching the heavens for E.T. It's true. You think I'm kidding. And you I kind of giggle with you. Except it's billions of our dollars they're spending. Google it when you get home. SETI, S-E-T-I. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There's a whole radio telescope array. It sits in the Owens Valley. It's focused on the heavens. Why? We're looking for E.T. to phone home. We don't like what we got here, so we need to look somewhere else. We just announced the world's largest, China just opened up the world's largest radio telescope just two weeks ago. It's over three times the size of the one in South America on Mount Arecibo. What's it doing? They're looking for E.T. We don't like what we have here, but we don't want to admit that there might be a God. So we'll look for E.T. to phone home. And bear in mind, I'm not really trying to model. These are brilliant people. But they are brilliantly focused on the wrong place. Because the one they're looking for can be found in the Word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And unless a man be born again, he'll not be saved. He can't see the kingdom of God. And all the searching the heavens isn't going to bring them close to the one who came here so that we could be close to him. And so the verdict, quite simple. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So if you're here tonight and you're in God's grace, hallelujah, amen? Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. It says to those under the law. So these things, you're here tonight, you're in God's grace. You don't need to worry about any of them because God's grace has paid the price for your sin. You have had your sins taken care of by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? But it says so that every mouth will be closed. Nobody's going to stand in front of God and say, well, I'm not, I don't fit that. It's not me. I'm okay with you. You can't tell me I'm not okay with you because I'm better than all those people. No, it says none of us are passing this test. No human being will ever be able to stand before a holy, completely just, absolutely righteous God and say on every count of the indictment, I'm blameless. Isn't going to happen. Ever. That all the world may become, notice this, accountable to God. That's the whole reason. It's not to bum us out. It's saying, look, God has told us what the standards are. And nobody can meet them. Not perfectly. Not that we'll appease God, who's absolutely perfect and absolutely holy. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in this sight. In other words, even if you could do it. You do it for the wrong reason, most likely to prove God wrong. By the works of the flesh, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now having said all that, we're all guilty. Praise God, the answer we get to next, to that great question, what do I do with it? That's really where it goes. But I'll give you a little preview. You repent. 
You ask God's forgiveness. And you let him heal you. And cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he inscribes your name in the Lamb's book of life. And you are golden. You're not perfect. But you're absolutely righteous. Cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Propitiation taken care of. Sins blotted out. God doesn't see them anymore. They're gone as far as the east is from the west. In the depths of the sea, they've been buried. He counts not your transgressions against you. That's why Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It took him forgiving us, not him making us so that we don't sin anymore. We have to be forgiven the sins that we will commit, have committed. So the good news, the grace of God, amen? The verdict is clear, but there's hope for those who will simply say, I'm guilty. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray together. I'm going to bring the worship team back up. Now, admittedly, and I did the best I could to try and lighten the subject. This is tough. This is hard stuff. This is like, oh, my stuff. But I've told you about the good news, and so I want to make the offer tonight. If you're here tonight, I mean, you came with a friend, you don't normally come to this church, and somebody managed to say to you, hey, why don't you come and check out what church is like, and you're here. And you've never received that grace gift that Christ offers. And you realize that in hearing these words that you're guilty. And you want to fix that? You want to swap out your DNA tonight? You want to be born again? You can do that tonight right here in this place. And so church, if you'd bow your heads, close your eyes. Please don't be looking around. If there's anybody here tonight, and and you tonight want to commit your life to Christ, I'm going to have you just raise your hand right where you're at. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. For anyone else, see that hand in the back as well. The Lord loves you so much, he sent Jesus into this world to die for you. Just raise your hand. I'm going to have you pray right where you're at. Anyone else? See that hand as well. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word to open our eyes, to open our minds, to open our hearts to the reality that you love us. Is there anyone else? Slip your hand up. I see that hand as well. There's other hands going up throughout the sanctuary. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, God. For those who have raised your hands, if you would just simply repeat after me, I'm going to have you pray a simple prayer. You can put your hands down and let's pray together. Body of Christ, would you just, in your heart, be praying for these that have raised their hands. Those that have raised your hands, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I desperately need a Savior. I, I want to change my life. 
but I can't do it without you. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to cleanse my sin, to set me free from that bondage. I'm asking you to forgive my sin. I promise to make you the Lord of my life. I'm asking you to indwell me with the Holy Spirit and to write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I'll thank you that you have forgiven me, that the old things have passed away and everything else is becoming new. I promise to walk with you. promise to do what you say. pray that you would bless me as I begin my journey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. I want to be the first one to welcome you to the family of God. So you just had a DNA swap. You're now one of God's kids. First day, amen? Amen. You want to tell someone with gladness that that happened. So as we close in song, we're going to have some, some pastors down front. Maybe you just want to slip up and tell somebody. But make sure someone knows, someone that can help you. If you need a Bible, if you need study materials, you need to get plugged in, uh, we'd love to do that and and tell you about the Lord and that new relationship that you now have. For the rest of us, let's close in prayer and then we'll worship. Father, we thank you. Thank you again, Lord, God, that we would get the opportunity to be in the same place when you're bringing in a harvest of souls, when all that's been watered and planted that comes to fruition god we thank you for letting us be a part and we pray that you would now bless these that have received your grace tonight pray that you would just encourage and strengthen them for the walk that lies ahead of them pray that you'd keep them from the hand of the wicked one and pray that you would bless us as your church lord continue to encourage and use us Lord, we pray for tomorrow night as as dr evans is here god would you Blow the roof off of this place with your goodness and your glory. Would you protect them, Lord, as they they bring forth a message that, that we believe that this nation needs to hear? God, would you have your hand upon... Tony and his his wife, upon Anthony, their son, Lord, those that will be coming to to bless us. Would you bless them? God, we thank you for tonight. We give you our lives. We ask these things in the amazing name of Jesus. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Let's worship.